This episode is brought to you by Urban Outfitters. Your life experience is much more valuable than the technical stuff. And you'll learn those technical stuff a lot quicker if you're actually doing it. What's up? Welcome to the You Knows the Best Pod. I appreciate your support. In return, I hope I provide you with some worthwhile gems that benefit you on your journey. At the very least, I hope I put a smile on your face. If not, hopefully you share this with someone that does benefit. And I got you next time. Again, thanks for joining today. And let's get this thing going. All right, y'all. Welcome to another episode of the Hugh Knows Best Pod, where I'm going to give you the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. Well, as best as I can, so help me God. Uh, so I got my boy on the uh, on the pod today, Steve Small Warner. Known Steve for about, what is it? We I'm 36, so about 18 years now. <laughs> like, uh, long time. Long time. <laughs> Half my life. Steve's a really dope dude uh, from Brooklyn. I let him tell his, his own story, but uh, today we're going to have him on as a black filmmaker, really just talking about his journey, how he got to where he is today, going from there, right? Because uh, he has a pretty dope story, right? Uh, but yeah, Steve, introduce yourself. Uh, let everybody know uh, I got you on I'm, here. <laughs> yeah, no, cool, 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 cool. I'm Steve Small Warner. Um, I am born in Brooklyn, uh, raised in Long Island, uh, Roosevelt to be exact. Um, and I'm a filmmaker. Um, I particularly specialize in vertical content, uh, which is basically anything on your mobile device. Um, and I've been doing this for a long time. Uh, I've been doing this for, this, this is a decade plus, but we might be in 15. Um, I'm showing my age, I feel like, but yeah, um, that's it. I'm a father. I have a daughter that I love. Um, and you know, I'm I'm making films. I'm making stuff. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So yeah, so Steve, like, it's crazy because we when we met back in like 2005, we were both in the school of business, and then you know we graduate, and everybody has a thing. Like everybody has their idea of what they're gonna do after we graduate college. Like I wanted to be a lawyer. I had decided I didn't want to do that no more. Right, but you decided to go to film school. Yeah, yeah, which I don't even know if that was a good decision. But um, <laughs> before I left, I mean, so I graduated with a business uh, degree uh, from Howard University, HU. You know, um, the from management. Um, were you in management? Yeah, was management. Yeah. yeah, so we, so you already know, like capstone courses and all of that. Um, uh, but while I was doing it, I think it was like my junior, it must have been my junior senior year. Um, I had picked up a camera and had like a crazy. It was like, it was like a crazy revelation where like you have a, a, a crazy uh, talent and you just didn't know. Yeah. So I picked up a camera because I was getting bored as hell and um, school of B. It was, it was, it was killing my creativity. And um, I just realized that I had a really good eye. I had a familiarity with my eye. And I was always a kind of a technical person. Like, uh, I built a computer back in the day with my brother and all this other stuff. Like, I, I knew, you know, technology. Uh, so I picked up a camera and I ended up almost right away. Um, Avery, I was living with Avery at the time. Avery Green, shout out to Abe. Yeah. And he was on the, um, he was on the, homecoming committee and I had pitched doing videos. Uh, I had figured out that my 
there wasn't a lot of videos. And because I knew technology, I also saw like there was this progression in technology. Like there was a pivotal moment. Um, this was for all my, my camera and tech is this is when like, you know, three CCD chips turned and you had like 5D Mark II and digital sensors became better. So I saw that happening and saw opportunity to connect that to some, some, some videos and some bread. So I did that right before maybe my junior and senior year, I, I shot homecoming, made videos for them and also pitched that they do videos. To begin with, they weren't really doing any videos at that time, which now just seems like the normal thing. To do. But that's that's the story of me getting out of the school of being. I um, I guess one of the interesting stories is like I was running track at the time, so I was able to register early. So like maybe my junior year, second semester, I had picked up a camera and then I was like, yo, I'm gonna enroll in like three courses in the school of C uh, and try not to get them to catch me. Um, they they caught, I mean, I was able to register, but when I got in class, they were like, this is for school of C, da, 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 and I ended up having to like show the um, director of photography teacher, um, the cinematography teacher, and a couple other teachers my work because like, I wasn't nowhere near the school of C, right? And they let me stay. So I was able to take like three pivotal, th those three courses kind of changed or got me into uh, shooting. And then um, it was it after that. I just never stopped. I was like, I'm going to just keep doing this. And um, hopefully my business degree will mean something. <laughs> I mean, I think I think the crazy thing is like, I, I got into school of business because they didn't have a pre-law program, right? At mm -hmm. Howard, right? And I because I wanted to be a lawyer, I wanted to do uh corporate law uh and corporate education. Mm -hmm. And I like I always looked at like the school of B, like that's gonna give me a structure because I'm gonna have a business one day. No matter what I do, I'm going to go into business for myself. So I needed to have these structures and understand how organization is run. Um even when I, you know, I did my MBA recently. People are like, oh, what are you gonna do with that? I was like, bro, I don't, I don't really need the MBA. It's for a network, and also kind of teaches me from a higher level of like how to look at uh, scaling organizations and things of that nature. I was like, I was like, I don't, I ain't, I'm not, I'm like, I'm pretty successful without the MBA. Like at this point, like I'm in my thirties, but that's dope that like you kind of like happened into this out of boredom. Like really is what you're saying. Like you were bored with the curriculum, right? And I think a lot of that's why I always tell like kids like, hey, school is what you make it, right? Like you're going to get an education, like asking an 18 year old, and you're I think in your case, you were like 16, 17 coming into college, right? Yeah, I was um 17 when I came into college. I couldn't get into a couple of employees. <laughs> yeah. And like asking someone that's a teenager to make a decision about what they want to do for the rest of their life, uh, is always ask backwards to be like, bro, the, the amount of times I like people, I know people change degrees, like, like Dom changed his major, like three, four times. Like so many of our friends like change their like concentration or their, their major is like it. You're bound to like realize at a certain point, like, Hey, this is actually not what I want to do, but I guess I, I'm so far along now. I got to figure it out. Like you, you said you grew up 
being like a very technical person and kind of basically what it sounds like dissecting everything um, mm-hmm. and looking at it in, in more detail. Like, do you think part of it has grown up in New York or like, uh, or like, you know, even like wanting to do film and like cinematography, like, you know, New York is big lights, big city, you know, like it's the entertainment industry. Do you feel like that kind of influenced it a little bit? Not, not real. I mean, it did eventually. So eventually when I started, I really was drawn to cinema specifically because I was, you know, I was nice with the camera. Like I was good, but like that became, I think one thing that, um, I feel like most filmmakers would agree with, and um, or at least this is my experience, it's very, you learn how to make something look good quickly. Mm-hmm. Like, ironically, people are always amped up about like looking good and all that, and like you kind of figure that out kind of quick. And once you figure that out, it's kind of like, all right, so what's keeping you here? You know, like you can make something look good, but what is that something? And what are you actually doing besides making it look good? Like, what purpose is this for? And I think that when I started to, like, dive into cinema, especially world cinema, like, I wasn't really, like, a Hollywood cat. Like, when I grew up, I was watching, like, Disney and stuff like that, I guess. I didn't have cable at home. So I really wasn't. Right. I don't know. I wasn't, I wasn't into, like, Hollywood, per se, or, like, bigger motion pictures. Uh, but I remember watching like um, Pi Darren Aronofsky, and it was just like this is wild confusion, and I feel some sort of way, but I don't know why I'm feeling this way. Uh, so, uh, and I I say world cinema when I bring up Darren Aronofsky. I mean, uh, at the time in New York, independent cinema uh, was something that I paid attention to a lot more. Obviously, Spike, um, but like um, I think really being able to what drew what connects New York for me is that I'm really like I was really into independent filmmaking in New York. Jim right. Jermish um, seeing seeing New York as a backdrop was like a big thing to me. Uh, or at least it was a thread that kind of excited me about making film. But that was later on. When I was in New York, I was just running around New York. I like I said, I was born in Brooklyn uh, and uh, my family got a brownstone in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, when it was Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. Uh, uh, <laughs> not at the Brooklyn uh, it is now. <laughs> and um, there was like, you know, like crackheads and like, there was things happening around. Um, one of the things that kind of always connected me to Brooklyn, specifically the city, was um, there, there was a lot of people that looked like me around. Like I'm still very tight with my neighbors. Um, and, but I grew up in Long Island and in Long Island, it was just a different space. I felt kind of like, uh, between two worlds. Um, I didn't have necessarily an outlet other than sports at the time. Uh, I played soccer since I was like seven, um, and was good at it. I was captain of the track team, captain of the soccer team, all of that. Uh, and I think something that really resonated with me from playing soccer to filmmaking was the idea of like, there's these separate parts working together for a single goal. Right. Uh, and I found like my, my soccer brain, my football brain was really in tune with being able to organize chaos. 
Like I can see things happening um, and I can be intuitive to the play. Um, and you really need that as a filmmaker. Uh, filmmaking is a chaotic activity. So being able to kind of like organize it and kind of see and make decisions where you need to make them uh, became super like a superpower for myself. Um, when I even before the technical aspects and all that, like it was just like I could just see what is needs to happen and decisions that need to be made. Um, and, you know, that was that was really the link, I would say, that got me into a space where I'm like, OK, maybe I should have been doing this all along instead of sitting in this B-Law class that's killing me right now. <laughs> right. <laughs> all you know. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's interesting that you correlate your like your athletic background and like what you learned in soccer, right? Uh, because I was thinking like, okay, well, you're playing the sport and you're you're it's kind of individualistic a lot of times when you're playing the sport. Uh, because, but you to your point as a director, like as a filmmaker, you're you have to make sure that the sound is right, the lighting is right, the the actors are doing what they're supposed to do. Um, everything has to go well while you're doing your part, right? You have to know what everybody else is doing while you're doing your part, right? As a former athlete myself playing football, like a lot of times you have to understand like how the team makes the whole, right? Like if if, if we all do this one thing, we come together, we can accomplish this great thing, right? Um, so as, as I think it's really dope correlation because I, I don't think I ever thought about filmmaking and sports being any type of like correlation at all. Heavy correlation, heavy correlation. It's ironic too, because it's like, I until I made the correlation for myself because of my experience, like when I said I played soccer, I mean, that was what I was doing year round. I was playing sand soccer in the summer. Um, I did run track uh, in high school. I was, uh, I went to state for the pentathlete, which is still a bunch of different, activities right for one school you know like everything but specifically soccer it really did help me i was a center forward in soccer so um and sometimes i played center midfield sometimes we played two up four in the middle i would be the top of the middle all right if anybody knows a little bit of football out there um soccer and you really constantly are seeing the bigger picture like you're constantly like looking at the form of like the strengths and weaknesses that you have, how can you use those to your advantage in order to score? And in filmmaking, you are constantly fighting uh, resources. Mm -hmm. um, no matter if you're scaled up to a million dollar private or not, or multi-million dollars, uh, once you allocate those funds, right? Um, no matter how big the film is, you are juggling resources. Uh, and the major resources that threads that that threads a smaller motion picture or indie film with something that's like a studio picture uh, is time. Um, uh, you know, uh, there's a famous filmmaker named Andre Tarkovsky that has a book called Sculpting Time, um, and he likens it to sculpting, and it's very much so that like you, time is you got all the money in the world, but you ain't earning more time. So. Being able to navigate everybody in a specific amount of time is very relatable to sports, right? Like you got a certain amount of time, certain quarters to 
make it happen. Get it. <laughs> get it. Sure. You know? So pivoting back, to, like kind of to the journey of becoming yeah. like, to the point where you are now, uh, I think part of your program, you were like in Asia or like you were in Asia, like for the majority of your program, like, so like, why, why did they have y'all in Asia? <laughs> One, but like, what was that experience? Like, uh, you know, learning how to do film or, or to, yeah, become a filmmaker while, you know, studying in Asia. So, so some of my film, I'm, I talk about my filmmaking journey a lot, kind of haphazard, like it haphazardly happened. I was always really good at making intentional choices, though. Yeah. Uh, even when I was in the school, it would be like, um, you know, I would take entrepreneur. Before they had entrepreneurship, I took uh, as a like a major, I took entrepreneurship classes and kind of tried to structure it around working for myself. I was always into that. The way that I got to, I went to NYU Tisch Asia uh, for a master's degree in international media producing. Um, after I did three homecomings um, uh, and structured the deal for them and like figured out the resources and then shot and edited and did all these things, I was like, yo. And it was just me and two other people, another producer, or two other producers doing all that stuff. I was like, yo, I need to figure out where to get the money. I got to figure something out. So I started to look up a bunch of different courses that I could maybe learn more, but not necessarily stay for a five-year filmmaking program because for me, I was like, yo, I have three in the can already. Like I already did these three things. I'm learning a lot kind of better doing it than I was trying to move from somewhere else. So I was actively looking for a film program or a place that understood story and also understood technology. I had I came up in a time, like I said, when I saw the technology shifting rapidly. Uh, matter of fact, in one of my entrepreneurship classes, shout out to Kathy House at Howard University. Um, and I, one of my entrepreneurship classes, she allowed me to create this idea um, with the team uh, of like being able to schedule a, a film that you could watch at a theater. And the back into it would all be digital. At that time, that was kind of an innovative, radical idea almost. And, you know, that wasn't that long ago. But to give context to the audience, when I first, in 2000, I got into uh, NYU Tisch Asia. And, uh, so I was in Singapore for two years. And that fall, um, uh, I think Netflix was at like $9 or something like that. This is 2011. Um, uh, and it quickly shot up something crazy, like five hundred dollars, something like that. Um, this was around the stock time price. Netflix, the stock price. Uh, this was sim- uh, around the same time. Um, and and, and definitely double check that. But um, it's a portion of the book that I wrote on um, vertical. Uh, but you know, at the time, Netflix was just coming into the game. They were just kind of theorizing if it would disrupt or not. And it was still doing DVDs. So yeah. just to give the audience context, I was in a time when I saw these things happening and I was looking for a program that understood that there was going to be a major shift and that they would prepare uh, people for it. So I looked at NYU, uh, just 
kind of innovative program uh, for international media producers. And I looked at MIT. MIT had a program um, for media. MIT's program was heavily tech technology. And I had a real uh, craving for a story. I wanted structure. I wanted to be able to understand story because I could feel it and see it, but I couldn't necessarily like sink my teeth into it. So I chose to go to NYU um, and it was a two-year program. I lived out in Asia. I watched a lot of Asian cinema. Uh, uh, Yojiro Unzo uh, uh, became someone that like really, as a director, there's a few directors that are like, yo, they were really, you know, practicing craft at a time, at a completely different time. Um, Wankar Wai, like a bunch of Asian directors that I would have never known, uh, I watched. And it was a very small program. Uh, so we're all family at, at NYU Tish Asia. The, the pro, I don't even think Tish Asia exists anymore, mind you. Um, but we still are very close knit in a sense. And they, they, a lot of filmmakers that came out of the program went on to, uh, work in Hollywood. They are the, the names at the end of the credits that you see, so on and so forth. So it was a dope experience for me. I was able to like, Got a documentary out in Thailand. I kind of learned how to make films in the wilds, to be honest. Like there's not, it's, it's, Asia was the wild, wild west, um, especially at the time uh, for filmmaking. Um, uh, like that's it. not to say that have a structure, but it was an obvious structure. So like, it was kind of like guerrilla warfare, like for filmmaking. Yeah, and um, like, and when I say this, I really, I mean, like, we sat down with the MGA at, at in Singapore. We spoke to them. We went to the Hong Kong Film Festival. So there's definitely structures. Uh, but when you have to, if you write a film, uh, depending on what it is, it has to go through the government essentially. Uh, um, yeah, it's it's over there, right? So yeah, so things are different. So you get a lot of more people doing guerrilla filmmaking and and really. Um, just going out there and, and, and just making it kind of, it has that essence of, I think, what, um, independent suddenly used to be, um, in America, um, sort of. So like with that in mind, like how has that influenced, like, like you say, you, you focus on vertical content, right? Cause I, I, I went to your website, I saw you were like vertical content and you were, I think I saw you talking about on Instagram, like how the world is kind of like short form media, right? Like part of the reason I have this podcast is really because people consume information in short form. Like if you try to give them information in a book or a long documentary, they're going to they gonna turn it off. Right. Um, so like you have to give people information in bite sized chunks. Right. So like how did that kind of influence how you go about making film? Man, that it. That is a crazy story, to be honest. Um, I when I went to when I went to, I mean, it's influenced my storytelling a lot in the sense that you know um, I'm very aware of audience in a different way. Um, but I think one of the things that it made me realize is that like I had this love of a craft um, that could be accessed. You know, there's films that were made by by you know, filmmakers in war-torn countries and stuff like that, that could invoke emotion, the craft itself, not the business around it. 
So I kind of fell in love with this craft. And then one of the first papers that I had to write when I was in uh, my master's program was a question of does size matter? Uh, and, <laughs> <laughs> and it made us start to, it, I was already kind of into technology and where things were going, um, especially from a distribution side. Like, okay, the internet is, I came from the internet with digital natives. So I'm like, yeah. I came up, LimeWire, Napster, like we could get this. And now we got the internet on our phone. Exactly. So what if we could distribute direct? And now what if there was a world where the screens, these smaller screens really outnumbered the bigger screens that we have? What does that world look like? And it was back then, this was in 2011, that we were starting to ask these questions. Uh, and it felt almost heavy, like theoretical at the time. But even when I was in Singapore, I would get on the train. Um, I lived in I lived in West Geelong. So I had to get the trains and get to get to the campus. And everybody would be on their songs. And I kept thinking about this as I was typing this paper. And I was like, yo, if this is the future, we really need to think about like who is the audience and what is a mobile audience? Because they're not the same audience that goes to the theater. They're not the same audience that is at their crib passively watching. And that really changed everything for me. Like just Thinking about that was like this small thread in my brain that I just, I couldn't let go of. Like this was years ago and to this day, I still remain excited about it because it's more obvious to see now. But back then, people were like, see, what are you talking about? And I'm like, yo, things are going to shift. There's like, we can actually access our story directly to a device. Um, and the people watching that are going to be different kinds of viewers right. they you know easy stuff is like yo their attention span is short but like even that has become very surface level it's like yeah shorter content for sure but then like what can shorter content do what does it have over long form content and that's when i started to get into like the depth of the content the intimacy of it like start really peeling back the layers using craft using the craft that i already knew to kind of like put them together. And that really became a lot of what just happens. It came from a theoretical space to like, it just year after year, there would be something that's like, yo, everything's going short form. Everything is going to the mobile device. And what does that look like? What's natively mobile there? Like what is native mobile? And when I started asking those questions um, with my knowledge of cinema, I have a, a pretty deep historical knowledge of cinema, um, which is not hard to get. It only really came up at the turn of the century. So, um, you know, coupling those things together put me in the place that I am now where like, you know, I, I specialize in mobile content. Um, I still write feature script uh, films. You know, I still practice the craft of making, you know, on a bigger canvas. But having done uh, so much work on the smaller canvas, I can recognize through lines. Um, uh, it's made me a better filmmaker in, a, in, in an incredible way that I constantly, I try to, every time I talk to younger filmmakers, I tell them, like, everyone tells you to make a short, but 
make make your make your short like make your film and make it as short as possible to play with like uh, your experience is going to be what it is in filmmaking like your life experience is much more valuable than the technical stuff and you'll learn those technical stuff a lot quicker if you're actually doing it and not planning to do it so like yeah that, yeah, cool. I've got it's, it's crazy you said that because like you know doing this podcast thing I just went to a summit in Miami and that's the biggest thing I took from it is like and I kind of knew it, it was like you're not going to get better at something you're not going to get good at something unless you're actually doing it on a regular basis learning from your flaws being like oh that that didn't work I don't want to do that again that's great advice for anyone that's trying to learn a skill or pivot into something that they've never done before is like you, the best way to learn is to actually do it and fail. Like fail, and and that is the opportunity that I saw. Like I was a predominant. I was I went to did my master's in international media producer, so we worked with the directors and stuff like that. At the time, I still wasn't sure if I wanted to direct, even though like everyone's like, hey, like you could you could do this." And I'm like, "I, I know, but I I." want to see the other parts to it. That was a big proponent, um, just being in a position where I was observing other directors move and do stuff and kind of being able to be like, yo, this, and, and learning how to like break down scripts and like actually like how much does a film cost? How do you estimate how much a film costs? Uh, and being able to break it down and all that other stuff. When I saw that, I was like, yo, I understand why people make short films uh, because I mean, the, the cost of making a feature film uh, is absorbent. It's, it's, you know, if we, I always try to equate filmmaking in the business uh, essentially to uh, real estate, mm. because if you want to make a, you know, if you want to make a house, where to make the house, depending on where you are, depending on the resources that you have, obviously, but it's a high range mark. It's a million, a million dollars is not really that much uh, in, in the real estate market per se. Right. Um, you know, $500 or $500,000 house, maybe you can make that with two or three, uh, 100,000, but it's not going to be the million dollar house. So that's very similar to short form and feature films. Um, when we're talking about um, a pro cinema as a product, uh, I try to make sure those things are too different because sometimes I'm talking to passionate craft people of cinema where I feel like money has to do with it, but the business models, as we can see, are old. So right. we shouldn't be holding on to any type. The Hollywood model isn't actually any model anymore. So you know, man, I try to decide or uh, make those distinctions, but as a cinema product in an industry, it's very much so like real estate. So be, making short form and being able to do that rapidly, being able to like, yo, I can make one, I can test my ideas out. They don't work. I didn't spend that much money. I didn't spend that much time. And I didn't have that much money to spend on anything. I, I have some classmates like, yo, we're going to spend. 20k on a on a short film. I'm like, chill, bro. Like, if I can't make that back, I just came from business school. If I can't make that back, I can't. I can't put that up. So, <laughs> right. 
It was like that. That's exactly what it was like um, for me, at least. Yeah. And I guess to that point, like, I think a lot of times people see the Steven Spielbergs, the, the, the people that are like known, like filmmakers and the success stories, but like, could you speak to like the struggles of like being an up and coming filmmaker, someone that, and like what that looks like and like, what maybe even what you've gone through there? Filmmaking is not easy, y'all. It's not easy. It's not easy. Um, it's not easy from a craft standpoint, and it's not easy from a business standpoint. Um, back then, I knew that the proliferation of video was going to be crazy. Like I knew back then, uh, when you started to see sensor sizes and digital sensors getting better, that means people were going to be able to produce video. That means the infrastructure of video also had to, you know, increase. Like our Wi-Fi had to get better. Like things had to just increase. Uh, so I knew that there was going to be a high demand for video. So I was like, yo, I'm going to be good. But no matter how you cut it, just like an entrepreneur in any other business, it's just not easy. Um, as an independent filmmaker, uh, and I'm proudly independent, um, and I, you know, a big thing that I learned from learning how to make films outside of the country is that, you know, I can make a film, I can make anything anywhere, right. uh, which I think is incredible for when I went to Hollywood uh, and talked to people and, and I was doing my best to connect the dots to um, a, you know, vertical filmmaking as an independent form of filmmaking. Um, you realize quickly that people know how to make a Hollywood model, but they can't really actually make it themselves, their own kind of film, their own kind of cake, if you will. If you're making an apple pie, you can get, you know, it from the store or you can make your own. And I think um, the ups are amazing. The ups are, are incredible uh, to be able to make something from scratch, get paid to do it, get paid well to do it in a short amount of time. You know, you can make from a money standpoint, you can make your year in a matter of weeks, um, uh, if not days, depending on where you're at, like in, in, in the game, how much, how much they, how much you're worth as a as a brand, let's say, where you get the Steven Spielberg, they make they're at the one percent of the top of the DGA, for example. And now you're recognizing it more now. I think people have a better idea of it because they see the writers and the actors on strike. The writers who make all of that money, 1%, the, the actors that make that 1%, yeah. um, there's a whole industry behind them uh, that really uh, works hard. They make it tick. Um, I I would point out the ITSE uh, too, the, the below below the line. Um, they, make the, they make this tick, you know what I'm saying? Um, without them, you know, it's, you don't have people, you don't have construction workers to build a house. You can have the architect and all of that. But if you don't have actual somebody to make the product, what are you going to do? Um, and, you know, that that itself, as far as my journey goes, um, I had to learn uh, how to scale uh, something that is difficult to scale as an independent. It's difficult to scale um, by yourself. You could be what they call a video. I used to hate being called a videographer. 
But you could be a videographer in the sense of being by yourself and getting bread and all of that. But how long can you do that? I did it for a while, for a long time. Um, mm. But I had to start learning how to connect to different teams and how to, you know, move in a way where I can create more substantial work. Uh, I can get paid better. Um, and there's no union behind you. You know, there's no there's nobody behind you when you're independent, traveling around the world, making things work. Um, so the ups have been really dope and the downs have been really low. Um, sometimes, especially for what I was doing, because it was somewhere in the middle of my journey where I felt like if nobody was going to focus on the mobile screen, which I consider to be the first screen, um, uh, if nobody was going to focus their storytelling on it, nobody was going to speak on it as its own thing. Um, I needed to do it. I mean, you know, I'm a pretty innovation kind of makes me more excited than any anything else. Really. And being able to see something that you're like, yo, this is for sure going to hit. This is for sure going to be it. After saying that so much and not seeing anything move and like, you know, I just got tired. To, I used to talk to um, um, uh, people at ad agencies, marketing departments at ad agencies and all this other stuff and talk to them, and talk, 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 talk about all of this stuff. And I was just like, yo, I'm tired. I, I got to make this happen. So in trying to make it happen, I experienced a lot of downs, a lot of doubts. Um it, it it really tested my spirit of what I knew and what I felt intuitively to be true. And I think a lot of filmmakers that are maybe not even doing anything innovative, they just want to make their film. They can go through that because it's a heavy task to take on. It's not um, the simplicity that you see uh, from watching something. Or, or your ability to be like, yo, that was just trash or whatever. You know, it's a privilege to be a critic. Right. It's certain it's a privilege to be a critic. When you really want to make it, when you really want to make a house, for example, it's different than just shopping for a house. Right. So, you know, I think that um, many filmmakers, what I've experienced, especially in the last couple of years, is this kind of like low in energy uh, from filmmakers because of what the industry is and all of that. Uh, and I went through that low years prior. Um, so now in these past couple of years, I've really been adamant about really empowering filmmakers and really empowering people to continue to tell their stories um, and not wait for the traditional methods to figure themselves out because we have such an opportunity right now to distribute directly to consumer, for example. We know that D2C is huge. Um, my my business acumen from being in the school of B hit me crazy in these times because I started to see more creative economics to the system uh, right. where we can actually produce films uh, with smaller crews with more efficiency. There's a lot of waste in film, um, a lot of time wasted um, in the sense of you know, you have, for example, when, whenever you have a big crew and you have a small scene to shoot, you'll look around and see everybody waiting. Uh, and in the industry, you, it's called like, like they'll say like your 
you're rushing to wait. And that's kind of like something that I think every filmmaker understands. But when you scale that to like, yo, you have a hundred people waiting around and three people shooting the scene, there starts to be kind of like, just from a standpoint of innovation through production alone, or the phase of production alone, you start to see like, yo, there could be more, we could be doing this more efficiently. You can be doing this in a way that the numbers make sense economically and that more people can tell their story. So, yeah, I think that's I don't interesting. Know if question or not, but <laughs> it, 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 it did for sure because like Steve filmmakers or they think they're like, oh, I can go do this. Right. But they don't understand the ins and outs of it. Like, hey, yeah, those people you see, they're the small, the very small percentage. Like, it's like the dudes you see playing professional sports, the billionaires, they are the rare ones that have the opportunity or have the leg up or whatever, whatever reason they were able, they were in position to capitalize at that point. That's not going to be everybody's story. Right. Um, and it's interesting that you bring up the, the the lean filmmaking, right? I think like in my program, we talked a lot about being lean, a lot of businesses figuring out how to be lean. And I think that's just going to be like business and culture the more we move forward, like the over hiring, the over paying, the whatever, like just creating roles that have no real dollar value. Like we see that with Elon at Twitter, right? Like that was a terrible experience for a lot of people. But when you look at it from a business standpoint, there are a lot of people that had jobs that were just filling seats. Like it did not drive revenue. It did not make the business better. It just made people feel better, right? Um, And when you're in business, (laughs) you're there to make money. (laughs) Like at the end of the day, we're not making money. We we not what are we doing here, right? Like it's great for this to be great value. Like it's great, holy. Like if you're making people feel good, you're providing opportunities and all those things. But like nobody's getting in business to be in debt or be broke, right? We not that's not- right. And I and and to be fair, to be fair to it all, I do think that like um, especially when you talk about Twitter, because I think that even the creators of Twitter. They kind of felt this need for it to transition into more of a utility. And I think we're actually, we're seeing that. Mm-hmm. It's unfortunate that it had to be that way from what it was because, you know, a lot of people lost their jobs. Um, yeah. things, things seem to be even radical, uh, as far as, you know, what is happening, um, at Twitter. But I would say that most startups are uh, the same, except when you got a billion dollars on the line, it's different. Um, similar for TikTok, I would say. Um, I'm sure that, um, you know, the environment at a TikTok is still has somewhat of a startup energy. Um, mm-hmm. just in the, just in the basis that like we're dealing with, we're in a time where we're dealing with things that happen very quickly, even though they don't feel like that. Like TikTok didn't exist a couple of years ago. But it feels like it's been around forever. Right. Um, and then we could point out wine and all these other things. So I think um and, and coming up in our time, uh, when we were in college, you know, the lean startup and and you know, startups in general, uh uh and and um, that kind of bubble uh was hot 
and that, those ideologies were hot fire. Like, how do you create something new? And I think now we're in a space where um, it's not just making something new, but we're experiencing contraction. How do you contract, but then contract in order to expand? So we're getting more into the depth and the nitty gritty um, of how things connect. How do they work together efficiently? Um, and I think that's slightly different than just creating a lean startup and kind of like, it's kind of like running real fast to get your momentum. This is much more about how do we make pieces that work efficiently separately and together. And I right. think we're seeing the same thing in film, uh, filmmaking. Um, what a lot of, it's ironic what you see as far as complaints from like the writers and stuff like that um, are business what business uh, maneuvers in order to uh, mitigate costs, right? Smaller writers rooms, stuff like that, where like writers, you know, if you have a smaller room for a shorter amount of time, of course you'll be upset. You're not getting paid the same, you know, right. and then you're getting paid less because this is this may not go uh, to um, to air or may not be distributed. But, and this is not to say that, you know, the figurines shouldn't be striking. They should definitely be striking. Uh, but while they're striking, um, being able to actually, for a union, especially for a writer's union, for the example that I just had, where it's like, yo, smaller writer's room are actually making the quality of work that we watch. How, how do you now own that? Um, would be my question as an innovator, right? How do you now own that and take advantage of that? Uh, and it's the same thing that I um, that I uh, look to do, or that I'm actually just in the process of constantly doing uh, with mobile filmmaking and making things directly for uh, the mobile device. Like, how do you, you know, a lot of people that I talk to don't even care about necessarily mobile. It's just some of the ideas that came from this really do create efficiencies in production, efficiencies and um distribution so you know i think we're seeing it around both in every industry but um definitely if i was to to link them uh i would say that um just to get back to the twitter thing twitter is becoming utilitarian um and um one thing i say about mobile video is mobile videos utilitarian first and foremost beyond it looking good beyond telling a story per se, it's very utilized for, for example, e-commerce. Um, right. Those videos aren't crazy creative, they're just moving, and that's what we want to see. Um, so even stuff like that, I think, is starting to become much more a part of our generation, where we're kind of breaking down. We're breaking down into the nitty-gritty of what things are, what is video, uh, and what is in, in, in Twitter's case, what is a uh, a public a public utility as a social app? What does that look like? Does that allow everybody to be on it? Yes. Does that mean that you're going to get a few curse words, you know, um, spray painted on on the ground like we see any other public utility? Absolutely. Um, so, I guess that's the way I think about it. At least this episode is brought to you by Zales. The way you're thinking about it is in a way 
your it's uniquely your own, but it's also like something to 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 think about is like where like I th- I think for me, I'm trying to gather my thoughts here is like looking at the at the strikes, right? In the in the in in that in in the film industry, right? And, and your wife is someone that's uh, part of part of SAG, right? So like, and yeah, so that, that directly impacts your 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 household. Is yeah, like how do we look at that? Like, yes, there are people striking, and I think a lot of times when people hear something about a strike, they're like, oh, they're just striking because they're they're complaining about something, or maybe the conditions are terrible. And I think there's always a balance, right? Like there, the conditions may not be great, but the reason that those conditions exist may be because of things going unchecked, right? And that's kind of how I look at Twitter and a lot of these layoffs with a lot of these organizations is like, hey, we, uh, what's the the phrase? We got over, a little over our skis, right? Like mm-hmm. we, we over indexed for for our growth and now the 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 year over year dollars ain't making it ain't making sense right uh right i'm at linkedin like yes we grew this last year but we didn't grow in the way that leadership expected us to grow right still billions of dollars but not the billions of dollars that they wanted right and so how do you scale back how do you become more efficient and more effective it, it, in your business, right? And I think Twitter, right? Like I would, the, the crazy thing is the day after the Twitter layoffs, I was, my MBA program was having uh, uh, on-site with their, basically their chief security officer oh. about, for IT, right? So we're having this conversation with him about people going to work and not being able to badge in and him having to like, to like remove access from people, but it's not because there was any malice in it, but it's like, Hey, we've over indexed on, on where we were going to go. And we, and we're spending money. We're burning through money that in a way that's not sustainable. Right. Um, Uh And so Twitter being a public utility, right. Using a lot of short form content, using a lot of video content, right. Vertical content. Um, there are going to be some shifts in how we how we utilize Twitter and how they go to market because, hey, we don't have time to focus on some things that you guys were utilizing the platform for before. But also, this is a this is a place for everybody to utilize. So we can't alienate any of our customer base because that's going to affect our dollars, right? And we also got to monetize this in a way that makes sense. Like we stayed away from that for too long. Yep. Yep. Uh, yeah. So um pivoting into like the family thing. Like so not your family man, right? So I've known your wife as long as I've known you, right? <laughs> um and our kids are actually like two weeks apart in age. Uh yeah. Just like a, a little girl, two New York parents, she's moving really fast. She's walking. She's walking <laughs> before my son was walking. She's talking. She got all teeth. She, uh, I think, uh, Sash 
posted that she's crawling in, in her own stroller now, right? Like, how do you balance being a husband, a father, and, you know, being a filmmaker at the same time, right? Like, I know there's a lot of things going on in your personal life. Like, we're we not, we not going to get into that, but, like, just, like, keeping the balance and try, and, and keeping the creative mind and not letting the distractions of, you know, these great things, but they're distractions, right? From, you know, doing, doing your work. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Man, I wish, I wish there was, I wish I could say something magical right now. Uh, (laughs) A lot of, you know, it's my brother said something. My brother has, um, my niece and nephew, my brother said something to me uh, that resonated later on um, when Sasha was still pregnant. He was like, yo, you're going to get punched in the face. And, uh, you know, he says stuff like that all the time. So I'm like, I whatever. But I think when I think about competition uh, and, you know, uh, I'm going to talk about being an athlete and all of that. When you get into competition, you know that there are certain risks. If you were to walk into a boxing ring, you can know that, yo, I'm going to get punched in the face. That's not actually the biggest thing to be concerned about. Like, that's not even. But once you once you're OK with that, once you're OK with the fact that you're going to get hit hard. Then you start to actually, you know, figure out other things. So like, um, you know, if you were in the boxing and you took the first hit and you're like, okay, I know it's power now. You can move. And I think that's what it felt like to have a child and to be creative and to have my wife also be a creative. It's not like one of us is like, yo, regular, regular and, or, and not to, I think, I think working a regular job is amazing. Uh, to someone like me. Um, but I think that um, understanding that there's a lot that you can't control uh, helped. Um, uh, my spiritual practices, um, uh, I became Buddhist uh, in my time, on my journey, uh, and really started chanting, really helped uh, uh, ground me. Um, and I needed that. Any sense of faith, um, especially when you're trying to do something that is taking something, an idea and making it real, uh, it's important to ground yourself in that type of faith. Um, especially when an idea is something like a child. <laughs> there is a sense of, um, there is a, I call it the circle of care when I talk to other fathers because I've been talking to a lot of fathers, uh, lately and, uh, and soon to be fathers like like Dom. Right. Um, but I quote the circle of care, like you're um you are I have to care for my child, I have to care for my wife, and then I care for myself. And that order is constantly changing. And we all know the idea of gotta put the put the um the oxygen mask on first. But that's not necessarily life. That's just not what it is. Um, and being able to, to manage how much I care for myself um, and care for my daughter and care for my wife is something that is a constant juggle. You're constantly juggling. Uh, and one of the things that I found to be really helpful is that I stopped compartmentalizing things. 
My stock compartments more than things. I don't come, I don't, I used to be like, this is my work. This is what I do here. This is what I, I don't do that anymore. Um, if it doesn't, uh, reside within the boundaries of life, uh, if it doesn't fit in, um, to my life, I, I, I can't afford it. Um, whether that be the energy, the time or the, or the one, to be honest, like I, I, I really just, have everything flow together. And that doesn't mean that I don't, you know, as I'm highly creative, uh, and I, and I know that, uh, and the thing that makes me highly creative is my structure. So I still structure my day. I still have routines. Uh, I've been an athlete all my life. So like routines, discipline, that comes second nature to me. Like I can do the same. Like I said, I'm on nine miles a week. I can do the same thing on routine. Uh, and that really gives me some space to be creative. That gives me, while running, that gives me space, especially if I'm like writing a story at the time, it gives me space to think. Um, uh, prioritizing exactly the things that I need for myself um, and creating boundaries around those things um, really helped. Uh, it's one thing when you're single and you're, you know, when you're 20 or something, like you're doing your thing. Um, there's a sense of discovery still, and I think in, in just being a human being, there'll always be a sense of discovery. But knowing the things that you need, actually, like when you're depleted, not the things you think you need, you know what I'm saying? That is a game change. Uh, because you may think you need something that it was actually just been a want all this time, uh, that you were able to kind of like feed you, feed yourself. Could be potentially feeding it, you go around it, and um, you know, uh, there's no space for that, especially with a child. There's no space for ego, there's no space for you being in a space that is too rigid. Um, and I guess my 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 ability to manage chaos, uh, is something that helps that because you know, there's times when I'm it's like right when you, and you're a father, so you should know. Right when you think you got it, you get punched in the face. So, <laughs> what, what Mike Tyson say, everybody got a plan to get punched in the mouth, punched in the face? Whoa, it's like, yo, uh, you can have all the plenty in the world, all the routine in the world. Uh, but uh, I, you know, that's the important part about faith, because when you don't have those things that you feel like you need, what are you falling back on? Um, to just gain a sense of yourself. Um, uh, I meditated a lot. I chanted a lot. Um, when I was first, when Sailor was first born, my daughter was first born. Um, I took her to the park, uh, and meditated with her. I chanted with her in my arms. Those things really helped that chaotic first couple months. Mm-hmm. And then far as far as being creative, uh, and I'll, 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 I'll end my rant with being creative is something that is also a muscle. Um, you don't have to always be creative the way you know how to be creative. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I'll just do it on a piece of paper if I see an empty canvas of paper somewhere around. Sometimes um, I will, it won't be about me being creative in the form of creating something. It may be um, a creative act. Me and, uh, me and my wife are both creative. So, Sometimes she'll bust into the room acting like somebody from some, you know, 19th century, whatever. 
Right. Uh, and instead of being like, I mean, sometimes, because I'm, I'm more of the, the I'm not mad. Right. <laughs> you're, the, you're the more of the serious person. <laughs> well, so, I, so when she does stuff like that, I'll, sometimes I'll be like, what's she doing? But I found myself more being like, you know, falling into it and doing kind of that say yes mentality that we see impulse do a lot. Um, and, and just being in, in that moment. Uh, anything that will get you present will 10x your creativity. Yeah. Hands down. Now I think I think that's a really dope thing to share. Just like from I, I think the creative part of it is super dope because like I know like a lot of times people get blocks because they got so much shit going on in life, right? You got you got the wife, you got the kids, you got the bills, you got whatever, and you just you don't have time to think about anything creative, but finding the creativity in life, right? Just what's happening around you is important. I think the other thing you pointed out is like being flexible as a father and as a husband, right? Like I I am a person that believes in structure, right? Like, I, like you say, control chaos, right? Like even my house, like my house doesn't have to be perfectly clean because, but I know where everything is, right? And if something's not where it's supposed to be, it will piss me off, right? But when you, when you have that child, you have to kind of like remove part of yourself, not in a bad way, but like, hey, this child doesn't know that about you. This child doesn't know that these structures are in place. And yeah. also they didn't ask to be here. So you have to pivot until they're self-sufficient to their, their every whim, right? Um because it's, it's bigger than you, right? Um, so yeah, I, I think, like to your point, like I hold my son and I pray with my son, like, and I cry because it's like, this is something I asked for. Like this is something that I've always wanted, right? Um, and like I, I tell everybody, it's not exactly how I pictured it, but he's here now, right? And the joy that I have like seeing him be a little person and figuring things out and like working through like his emotions, right. And his discovery of life. Uh, and even having to wake up at six 30 in the morning because he has a feeding schedule. Like I want to stay asleep, right? Like I don't want to get up. <laughs> like I don't want to wake up. I don't, I don't want to wake up at two 33 o'clock in the morning to check his diaper to make sure he didn't like use the bathroom on himself in his sleep. Right. But it is deeper than that. Like, like I'm one of the people that just I would sleep when I'm sleep, I'm sleep. That is not a thing when my child is here. You know what I'm saying? Um, so yeah, but I think also my son has motivated me to lean into my creativity doing this podcast and things of that nature because it's like I gotta find space for myself because well, before my child was here, I could travel and go do whatever I want to do, right? But now that's not a thing because I have to be here for, for the little dude. Well, how do I, you know, still pour into myself, right? Get, get, get to do the things that um, I like to do. So, like, my podcast is really me talking to my friends, right? Like, I don't have time to be on social media as much. I got to focus on work. I got to focus on my kid. But it's also a way of me, like, 
leaning into my purpose. Like my purpose, I feel, is to provide resources to other people that they may not have, right? So if there's an aspiring young filmmaker on on watching this podcast, now they understand what that journey looks like, that they don't have to always follow that traditional way of doing film, right? And understanding that, hey, there are people doing this. You can do it independent. If you if you want to do like the big films, understand that that's going to come at a very big cost, right? Right? Different, different, different cost. But you can also navigate that while being a father or being a husband. Mm-hmm. Like, just because life happens doesn't mean that you just have to drop what you it levels you up. It levels you up. At the end of the day, it's like getting into a bit like it's just like any other activity or any other sport or athlete. Anything, anything. We learn by being around people that are better than ourselves. And I think one of the things that um fatherhood and I could only uh, assume from what I see of motherhood um, from my life is just the idea that like it, your child is kind of like a competition that levels you up. You know what I'm saying? Like parenthood will level you up. If you are, if you want to be a, a filmmaker, if you want to do anything, if you want to do something, if you say one day I will do this, when you see you know, we have to become a parent in the sense of taking on becoming a parent. You start to quickly realize that you have less time for certain things and that with the time that you have, you really want to make sure that you're doing things that are pleasing. And if it's something that's a, a great passion of yours, you'll find a way to do it. Um, no matter how hard it is. Um, and I think that. One of the things, especially for the, the filmmakers out there specifically, you, you know, your story doesn't lose you, you know, no matter when you're doing it or not, it doesn't leave you. Like, even when I don't have a story that I'm either, you know, writing notes for or something like that, the story is always around you. Um, and, uh, and just to hop in back, I was going to say, you know, and I don't, I don't have to get too deep into it because I, I got to make it move in a little bit. But the year of the year that I became a father, I lost my father. Um, and I also lost someone very close to me, um, in the past year. And, um, just it felt like chaos all around having to take care of a newborn, um, dealing with family and dealing with all this personal stuff. Um, is still showing up to be a husband, showing up to be a father. Um, it's showing up for myself because especially at those times, I really needed to show up for myself. Um, and, you know, make sure that I take the time I needed to reflect, to grieve, to do what I needed to do. Um, and that idea of showing up for yourself, of stepping into the ring with yourself, essentially. Um, is something that takes a lot of grace. It takes a lot of forgiveness of yourself, of, of who you were, um, of how you operated. Um, all of that kind of has to fall by the wayside, and which is why there's no room for that ego. Um, because you need the space that ego takes up to fill with grace, to fill with the things that you truly need for yourself. 
And with that comes being creative, trying new things, um, you know, uh, finding, you know, it may, people may fall off and may find different people that you, you're gravitating towards and allowing those shifts to happen. Um, uh, you know, essentially going with the wave instead of trying to fight it is probably the most, I mean, crucial thing I've gotten through my last year of dealing with so much energy changing and shifting around me and still managing to uh, run a creative business, mind you, um, but also be creative, have my own projects that I'm working on, things that really uh, turn my gears uh, other than, you know, someone else's managing someone else's creativity, which I find myself doing a lot in, in the business of it. Um, so I was able to, I put out a short film at the top of the year. I am in post-production with another short film that I just, I just did, uh, while still finishing, uh, four client projects. Like I was able to do much more than I would have assumed that I could have done before I was a parent. Like now I'm a parent. I'm, I'm operating at a completely different level. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm just in a completely different atmosphere of myself, uh, which makes me feel even more like, damn, there's new levels to hit. Like I could, there's new, there's more. That's why I did that mile. Uh, I, I, I recently ran, um, a competitive mile. Um, and I just, Got that feel, like yo, I could, I could do that too, you know. Um, and I think that's important for any creatives, for any parent out there, for anybody just trying to be in a capacity of um, championing themselves, um, really stepping up to it and recognizing that you don't have control and you don't have control, um, and that um, that will return to you. Uh, you're not, you're not, you're not. You're not letting go of something um, and losing something, essentially. If you're always in the mindset that you're gaining, you know, yeah, uh, the writer's on strike, but I'm sure we're going to see a boost of creativity in the next coming years. Uh, we're going to see something so out of the box that we never even thought of um, without this pressure. Uh, and I think kids do the same thing. Kids are like, yo, your whole schedule out the window. They don't even think about that. Like, right. uh, <laughs> but I, you know, it's, it's, it's the level up. There's definitely a level up. All right, bro. I know you got to go. So is it like you mentioned the short film that you dropped at the beginning of the year, uh, and the one that you're working on, uh, if you don't mind sharing with those, though, some of your projects that you've done so people can look you up and like, uh, I'm, engage with the content. You could, you could, you could find small Warner is my last name, dot com. Um, S-M-A-L-L-W-A-R-N-E-R.com. You can find all my work there if you want to just check out. I'm like, yo, is, is he really nice? All you filmmakers out there, you know, um, I, I come, I come from old school filmmaking. So like, you know, if the, if the integral DNA of it is there for sure, for sure. Um, and then, um, you could check out the short film that I just put out on there. It's called Liana. Um, we, shot it and were was able that's a whole nother conversation but we were able to shoot it at a certain cost uh and then make it a don donation base 
Um, and we were able to achieve at least a third of the cost without doing any marketing. Um, these are small signals that like direct to consumers possible, but I won't even get into that. Rihanna is on the site and the next, the next one I got coming that I'm super excited about. It's a mobile film specifically. Um, I shot it natively vertical. I wrote it and directed it with an amazing team, uh, amazing actors. Um, this is going to be vertical motion pictures. The, the, the brand and company that I run, this is going to be our first narrative piece. It's called Killing a Laverne. Um, a lot of things that I tend to create as a, as an artist deal with mental health. Um, uh, and it's been like that for a while. I didn't know why it was like that at first until later on in my journey. But, um, so that's, that's all the things that I got going on. Um, vertical motion dot pictures is the site. That's also, you can also get to that through smallwarner.com and at small is my everything. Like you can find me on Twitter at small warner, um, Instagram, you could Google small warner and I'm like the first five pages on, uh, the benefits of having an interest in me. Yeah. So. You even took the <laughs> there used to be a hyphen. You took the hyphen out and everything. Oh yeah, yeah, and I got that done. Uh, that's actually like that was my legal name change as well. Um, uh, there's there's a whole story behind that, but yeah, there's no more hyphen in my name. Just small water. Um, so you know, uh, that's that's me. You can find everything there. I I appreciate you. Allowing me to allow me to be on and, and share some time with you. It's good rapping with you. Likewise, I haven't talked, I haven't talked to you in a lot in a while. And obviously, yeah. I heard some updates from Dom because uh, you know me and him rap all the time. Yeah. Um, but I was I was super happy to hear uh, 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 about you becoming a father. Um, and we definitely got to wrap off mine because I know I know there's more there's more to the story. Yeah, for sure. Um, <laughs> so whenever, whenever you yeah, yeah, I got you. I got you. All right. Well, Steve, I appreciate you coming on. Uh guys, as I always say, um be the best version of you because everybody's already taken. I wish you peace, patience, understanding, knowledge, wisdom, discernment, health, strength, resolve. Uh, you know, be easy because every choice has a consequence and every action has a reaction. Um, but love y'all and be easy. This episode is brought to you by Apple.